You know, I hear the word seeker get thrown around a lot like it's something that certain people choose. But deep down, I think we really are seekers, whether or not we currently embody it or not. I think the wonder and curiosity that humans have, and especially are born with if you look at children, is one of the great joys of being human. And at first glance, it can look like we're all looking for individual answers for individual problems. But when you zoom out, I really believe we're all looking for the same thing, the answer to our humanity. And what I believe the truth is, is that there is no one answer to our humanity. I think being human means being imperfect and problematic in a chaotic world where bad things happen. And that doesn't take away from the magic that it is to be human and the possibilities that you can have in your lifetime here on this planet. Part of my work here on this program means getting to speak to some of the great spiritual minds and get to prod and poke around for some of those answers, but I don't think anyone has your answers. What I personally believe is that the only person who has your answers is you, and it's a matter of going deep within and inquiring and looking and searching and asking that inner wisdom within you. But that doesn't mean that you can't get help along the way from ancient wisdom or from teachers or from books. I think that just when you hear something that rings true, when your soul recognizes that this is what you need in your life, that it's not somebody giving you new information, but instead it's somebody putting a voice to the information you've had inside you all along. And somebody is speaking for your spirit. Well, today's guest is Stephen Mitchell, and he may take the cake for the seeker who has seeked the furthest on this program so far because a huge portion of his work is translating and adapting some of the great ancient texts like the Tao Te Ching, the Bhagavad Gita, but also stories like the Iliad and Beowulf and Book of Job. And they're really fantastic. His latest book is Joseph in the Way of Forgiveness. But if you were to ask him, one of his favorite translations is his collaborations with his wife, Byron Katie, which he says he translates her into written English. And their books are really beautiful. So here is my conversation with Stephen Mitchell. Stephen, thanks for being a part of this program. Oh, my pleasure, Sam. And for especially finding this beautiful place for us to record. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. So I don't imagine you've spent any time asking this question of yourself, but I like to start small. Mm -hmm. Good. And ask, who are you? Uh <laughs> That's that's the question. As a matter of fact, who am I is, is the basis for practice for some really important spiritual traditions like the uh, non-dual tradition in India or, or the Zen tradition. On that level, on the most fundamental level, there's no answer to that. But uh, on, a, on a more shallow level, I'm, I would say I'm a husband, I'm a writer, I'm an American, I'm a Jew, I'm all sorts of things that are, are fun to be, for me anyway, and um, none of which are true in a deeper sense. I hope that's a confusing enough answer. <laughs> that's perfect. So I have been aware of your work. I actually owned a or own a copy of the Bhagavad Gita ah. that you translated. Yeah. I know you as a translator of ancient wisdom, ancient texts. Mm -hmm. That is a lot of what I want to talk about today is the understanding of you've spent a lot of time working with some of the greats, mm. some of the greats in ancient tradition. And then 
I also translate my wife into written English. I have noticed. <laughs> I noticed that you get Byron the... Katie. Yeah, uh, those are some of the books that I'm proudest of. Yes, yeah, so I've worked with several of the main high spiritual traditions. Your latest book is called Joseph in the Way of Forgiveness. I loved it, by the way. I didn't know what I would be getting into. I was raised Christian. I heard the story. And after reading your book, I realized that what I was given was these kind of now what I would consider almost offensive caricatures mm. of, of the characters where mm -hmm. it was, it just seemed like a silly story. And what I really appreciate that you did is you brought the story to life into adulthood, into a full story where the archetypes really come into their full being. Well, I'm so glad you, you took that away from it. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah, you really made them human. The version I had heard was so watered down and so polished for Christianity. Mm -hmm. There was no mention of the polygamy. I don't even think they covered the the infidelity or the, the sexual nature of the story. Mm -hmm. And it was just a delight. Mm. I've been struggling with religion, organized religion, um, for a while now. Just honestly, the my biggest detractors, the people who write the meanest things to me are generally Christians mm -hmm. <laughs> for whatever reason or another. Something I have done has offended them. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of fall in love with these these stories that I was raised up on, it, it was a real gift to me that you gave me in some way. Oh, I'm very glad about that. The story itself is a very beautiful story. A, a Tolstoy who knew a thing or two about storytelling called it the most beautiful story in the world. So it has the the um, the elements of uh, something that's transformative. That is, you know, uh, 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 it really is a story about forgiveness. But it tends to get lost as it's as it's read in uh, traditional ways. Not only Christian, but Jewish as well, because the uh, the way it's been handed down in the Jewish tradition through rabbinic reactions to it is a, a very moralistic story and Joseph is is the perfect one and his brothers are evil and and the woman who falls in love with him or is attracted to him is is an evil woman as well and you know it's it's that kind of black and white moralism which is not too attractive it it leads to people being offended you know um, like the the Christian people who are nasty to you, and religion on on that popular level makes people offendable, you know. But it's possible to be beyond getting offended at a higher level. That's where people want to be, or that's where I want people to be. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I've always fallen in love with the traditions of religions that have a whole pantheon of gods. Mm -hmm. Is that no one needs to be perfect. And so when they tell these stories, there's fallibility and there's like human traits in the in the story because this God can be the greatest warrior on the planet, but then also have a problem with infidelity or there's no supreme being. So it's always felt like more I could see myself in the story or see myself in the characters. Mm -hmm. When it comes to what project you're going to pick, because it means obviously pouring over a story that's been told thousands of times. I mean, I guess millions of times if you count oral tradition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not only oral traditions, but literary traditions too. Thomas Mann, you're probably aware, 
wrote a huge 1,200-page book elaborating on the Joseph story. And, and it's a, a wonderful book in many ways. In many ways, it's a big bore and very ponderous, but it's a very intelligent retelling. So the story has attracted people in all sorts of oral traditions, but also in the high literary traditions. This is actually a question that one of the patrons who support this program was curious, is what makes you confident that you can do this story justice in a way that other people have yet to do? That's an interesting question. I don't know what made, what made me confident. What I do know is I was totally confident, a confidence that it's not a static thing. It's a feeling of great joy that I'm about to embark on an adventure that I know is going to turn out wonderfully, and I'm going to discover a lot of things, and it's really going to be a, a journey of discovery for me and then necessarily for the reader. So I knew from the beginning, I don't know what it was in me that knew, but whatever that was, it knew that whatever talents I have and whatever experience I have would be would be able to be poured into this adventure and to come out of it with a really valuable book. So I don't begin a project unless I have that sense of total confidence. I remember when I just began my uh, free version of the Tao Te Ching, which has been a very popular book, I remember thinking, I don't know Chinese, I'm not a, a Taoist scholar, I'm not a Taoist at all, how can I begin this book? And then there was something that I used to call an umbilical connection with Lao Tzu or whoever it was, whatever collective it might have been that wrote that book in the original. That was something I had no doubt about. It was absolutely obvious to me that that, connect, that deep, intimate connection was there, even though I didn't know Chinese and I could find ways around that lack of knowledge that would serve me well. So that was one of the most obvious instances of me beginning a project with total confidence, even though I had certain weaknesses in, at the beginning. I was wondering if you could, I think part of any great story is the how you got here. And I was wondering if you could share a bit of how you got here, what shaped your life in a way that led you to now the person that you've become today? Well, the very short version is that I spent most of my 20s looking for a way to deal with the pain in my heart from a, a breakup in my first love affair. I looked for a way out within the Jewish tradition. That's what I knew. Also, I, I looked within certain Christian texts, too. And I spent seven years searching this way. A lot of it was through working with the book of Job and actually translating that from the Hebrew, because I felt that in the book of Job, the, the poet who had written that had seen something stupendous about human suffering and the end of suffering. And if I could understand what was going on at the end of the book of Job, where a vast transcendent God, much bigger than the God of the rest of the Bible, it seemed to me, gives an answer to the problem of human suffering. If I could understand that, then I'd have a way of dealing with the pain in my heart. And so that took me seven years before I realized that I wasn't going to get it that way. I switched gears and I was going to go to India to meet a teacher. I was learning Hindi, etc. And at that point, I bumped into a Zen master who said, don't go to India, stay with me. I'll 
help you get to that realization. That's what happened. In fact, I underwent many years. It was another seven-year period of intensive meditation where I wasn't doing anything else in my life. I didn't have any relationships. I, I gave up writing. I gave up reading for that period and just poured my focus into trying to understand myself through meditation. And so basically that gave me a project and after I had my first spiritual opening, the rest of the process was a question of deepening that, of clarifying the insight, of working through all sorts of karmic junk, basically, that was in my personality. That was my life. The writing was a byproduct, a series of fascinating adventures, but my focus was on coming to a more complete understanding, a more thorough end of suffering. And then when I met my wife, Byron Katie, she gave me a whole other understanding of, of what it is to be a free human being, uh, what it is to be a fully realized human being, and a surprising and deeply moving thing to see in her, the, even the first time I met her, what a completely open heart looked like. And so that was... Um, a further refinement of my practice, learning just by being close to her how it is to live that way. And so that's really the shape of my life, the shape of my practice. And my work writing books is a byproduct of that. I remember taking note when I first met you and Katie, when I came to interview her, I remember mm -hmm. taking note that you still looked at her with the eyes that she was a teacher in some way. And I thought how beautiful that was. It was and it washed over me, the whole feeling of it. And I just thought, what a beautiful way to look at your partners, besides just the person who you love, but also as somebody who's there to teach you something. My relationship to her is really one of devotion, and I'm constantly in awe of her. So that's a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm really, I really live at her feet. And it's, it's an unusual relationship in that I, I don't know of any instance where a devotee is also a husband or a wife. So um, we're, we're, it's, it's a new kind of experience, but it really works well. It does. I remember also thinking, because it was clear of how much you do help <clears throat> with the translation yeah. of Byron Katie when I met her and just her, the way she moves through the world. It was, it was very clear that she's not going to sit down and peck away at the keyboard. No, you know? no. <laughs> and I just thought, how beautiful that they met each other because they work so symbiotically together. Yeah, it seems like a perfect combination to me. I come with qualities that she has no idea about, much less embodying. And, and it's been uh, a case of vice versa as well. But, you know, she's very um, brilliant and eloquent with spoken English, but she doesn't have a sense of what written English is. And I, I take her very Katie-ish spoken English and craft it into something that has her integrity and brilliance in the written realm as well. So it's a fascination for me, and it, it, it has produced some really effective books, I think. I love how you start the journey at the heartbreak that that was 
obviously to you a major moment of transformation. It was for yeah. me as well. My first, uh, you know, I've had two major heartbreaks. One was for better or worse captured with my interview with Byron Katie. I don't know if you remember, I showed up broken. Yes. Completely broken. I do remember. And with almost no effort, she gave me two weeks of complete reprieve, uh, of total reprieve where I got to catch my breath and be able to regain some energy to continue on the process of, of grieving and working through what was going on. But that was my two major heartbreaks were giant moments of transformation. It's a shame that these moments of pain generally are such important moments. Well, that's how it happens in, in many cases. And in the Joseph story as well, um, one of the things that I was most interested in doing is providing a shape to that story that is implicit in the original Bible story, but it's everybody misses it, which is how did he get from the arrogant, spoiled brat of the beginning of the story to this master of reality at the end? What people miss is his, what I imagined as his experience in the pit when his brothers try to murder him and throw him into one of these water gathering pits out in the meadows. There had to have been some kind of transformation. When did it happen? Well, it might as well have been in the pit where he's thrown down naked without any relief there for days. And I imagine him as coming to this heart-shattering realization of how arrogant and unkind he's been to his brothers to the point where they want to murder him. And that is the insight that flashes into his mind with devastating power and grows in the pit over the hours, over the days, until it becomes a kind of openness and humility that, that leads him to his ma sense of mastery later. It's like this with any kind of fruitful heartbreak. And it was like that for me. I mean, it took a pretty conventional young man with a conventional intelligence and bent him way out of shape and left him there suffering for more than a decade, but searching and finally finding a way out of suffering. And in one of these central truths that the Buddha embodies in his Four Noble Truths, you know, that there's a cause for suffering and a way out of suffering, and this is how it goes. So I did find that way um, over many years. It took me 18 years before I could meet that young lady again at a point where she wasn't such a young lady, but I felt ready after 18 years finally when I had put myself back together and I wrote her. I sent her actually my first book of translations from Rilke, and she wrote back and we agreed to meet in New York. And it was one of the great experiences of my life when she walked in and I, and we started to talk and I, I felt this sense of elation that I had never felt before that the connection, the intimacy was there in a much more powerful way than it had ever been when we were 20, 21 and struggling so, so greatly with my personal issues. So, so it was an 18 year cycle. It was like closing the circle on, on a karmic difficulty in my life. And, uh, the elation that I walked out of that, those four days with was something that, that I'll, I'll always remember. And we're still, we're still close friends. Wow. Speaking of moments that you'll never forget along the journey of healing from that heartbroken mm. man to the seeker 
to the uh, what the I finder. <laughs> the finder. That's so funny. That just came up in another conversation where the master said, you know, seekers are great, but it's really about the finders. Mm. What are the moments of transformation along the way, the downloads of wisdom that you will never forget or that you never want to forget? Well, the um, one of them for sure was that uh, was the first moment of, you could call it a spiritual opening or a kind of little enlightenment experience. Uh, the Japanese have a word for it, kensho. In, in the Zen tradition, it means a glimpse of reality. A glimpse is enough to shatter the whole system of beliefs and assumptions that most people go through life with. It's the old Zen masters talk about having a window be caked with grime and filth, and then one little pinprick of clarity where the light can get through. That's what that initial opening is. And later, through intensive practice, you can enlarge that opening till maybe a quarter of the window is is clear and then and then the whole thing and then eventually you can do without the window itself where there's just the light but that first moment it's a memorable experience i remember reading afterwards it was during a 7 day retreat and afterwards going back to some of the most difficult texts that I had been struggling with, Buddhist texts like the Diamond Sutra and the teachings of a great Zen master called Huang Po, which had been incomprehensible to me before, but I I, I kept reading them because I knew that there was a, a resonance of truth that I wanted to get to, to understand. And, and yet it was like hearing blah, 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 blah. You know, I, I just, there was no understanding there. And afterwards I opened these books and everything was crystal clear. It was like, you know, night and day before and after. So that, that first opening was uh, something I'll never forget. The first moment of meeting Katie is something I'll never forget too, of looking into her eyes and seeing this this vast love at a level where I felt I was just a baby. And it was so, so powerfully moving and beautiful and exhilarating. And at the same time, for me, there was an element of mortification in it too, because I had believed myself to be much further along the path than I actually was through contrast with her. And that turned out to be a, an exhilaration later on. But at the first moment, there was a sense of mortification at my own arrogance, my spiritual arrogance. And um, all of that worked itself out. But it was a, the sweetest moment. It was as if you're looking at a at a work of art that is your favorite and has given you so much over the years. And then suddenly seeing a whole different level of truth to it where you, you've only been um, scratching the surface and now you've suddenly been led into its depths. It was a marvelous experience. So those are a few of the, the ones that I'll never forget. I felt drawn to the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, for a long time. But yeah. it's, a, it's such a, it's a small book, but yeah. it's such a big book. Yeah, I know there's people who walk away from it that justify violence, and there's people that walk away from it that feel it's a book of peace. Mm. 
it's intense and it's masculine. I mean, you're in this epic battle. You know, it starts off in an epic battle where Krishna's saying, you can never kill their eternal spirit, but you need to kill your friends and and family who are on the other side. To me, I think one of the big takeaways, and I'd love to hear your big takeaways from me, it's it's a book of responsibility. I mean, it's an action book. It's not just about contemplation and inner work, but it's about mm-hmm. being a servant to your purpose and doing the work that's in front of you. What was the, when you were working through that book, what mm. was your your favorite realizations, your favorite moments where you just go, I got it. Like I, I got what this part is telling me. Mm. I worked with that a number of years after I worked with the Tao Te Ching. My, my experience with the Tao Te Ching was with a text that was as close to saying the unsayable as I had ever seen, except perhaps for some of the old Zen dialogues. But the Tao Te Ching had a profundity and a subtlety and a humility to it that was, you know, my touchstone for a great spiritual text. Passages like, you know, uh, talking about the Tao, I call it the Tao for lack of a better word, you know, and I'd love to see Jews and Christians say, I call it God for lack of a better word. And there's, there's such wisdom and humility there and intelligence about how language distorts reality. So I came to the the Gita after working with the Tao Te Ching, and it was a a uh, a really interesting experience. The Gita is is not subtle in that way, but it's expansive in a way that the Tao Te Ching isn't. In other words, it gives you this path, that path, a third path, a fourth path. If you can't do it through the first one, then here's here's another way. Uh, if you can't do it through the, the yoga of um, knowledge, then let's do it through the yoga of action. Or if that doesn't work for you, the yoga of contemplation. So there, you know, it's it's very generous in its understanding that there are different ways for different kinds of people. One way is not better than than the other. And I think that that's a a wonderful kind of permission for people to to try to um, become self aware enough to know what path it will be the most fruitful for them. In its non judgmental quality too, about the path of wisdom is not the supreme path, worth more than the path of action, for example. So it gives permission to people to to just go by the way that seems most appropriate and most useful for them. My great attraction to the Gita was to the vision of uh, Krishna that occurs, I think it's in book 11, um, where Arjuna has this transcendent vision of the Krishna beyond the Krishna he's been talking to up until that point, this vast, terrible, terrifying, unadorned, vision of the Godhead, where all the destructive as well as the creative qualities of the ultimate Godhead appear. It's terrifying for him. It's like an acid trip where, you know, people might tend to call it a a bad trip because that's the category they're fitting it into. But it's it's more than that. It's it's something that, that can be extremely useful if you 
hold yourself together and not not get into a judgment about good or bad. So so he goes through this absolutely excruciating terror and comes out the other end. And I love that because of all my experience when I was a young man seeking uh, my experience with the book of Job, it's a very parallel vision of the voice from the whirlwind at the end of the book of Job, which is also an experience of great terror because the experiencer is not quite ready, but it's it's beyond good and evil. It's an experience of the God beyond good and evil, where everything becomes pure energy. It's more explicit in the Gita, where Krishna is both creator and destroyer and is everything. That book for me was always an example of the God beyond God and a wonderful corrective to the Jewish and Christian vision of God where the destructive elements are displaced onto a, an image of the devil or of right. the, its equivalent in, in Judaism. So it's uh, something that that even traditional Jews and Christians who are, are practicing and learning through those traditions can, can deepen their awareness by coming to terms with the vision of God that you see through the 11th book of the Gita. What are the big teachings that you cling to from the Gita? The Hindu path wasn't my path. I had the most powerful affinities with the Zen tradition and, and Buddhism in general. Let me back up and say when I first discovered the Gita in when I was 30 years old, it had a, a powerful effect on me, and especially that chapter. So when I came to translate it how 20 years later, um, it was partly as a way of giving back what I had gained from it from at that first reading, the, the sense of, of vastness, the sense of a God beyond good and evil. And it wasn't as a personal practice. So while I could appreciate its value, its breadth, its ability to give people various paths of practice, it didn't have any particular effect on me personally because I had I was already very strongly established in in my Zen practice. My connection with the Hindu tradition was through a, a teacher named Ramana Maharshi who was um, who died in 1950. Some of your listeners will will know his work and appreciate him. He he actually was one of the most important experiences that I had early on when I was just beginning Zen was looking at a picture of him and seeing the eyes of what I felt was absolute unconditional love. And I, I didn't see those eyes in the flesh again until I met Katie. And I, I saw those same eyes in her. And they actually have a lot of similarity in their stories. He was uh, a schoolboy, a 16-year-old schoolboy, and not particularly spiritual. And one day, I don't know if you know his story, but uh, one day he um, felt a an intense fear of death come over him out of the blue. And he lay down on the floor on his back just to let the experience deepen and take him. At a certain point, he realized that that he, that was a bodily experience and who he really was to your first question of the day. 
uh, had nothing to do with death or life, that spiritual opening, which just wiped out his personality and left him as this enlightened sage, and he went to a mountain that he was really attracted to and basically sat down and and never left the mountain. And at the age of 16 was as wise and as, as beautifully eloquent as he was at the age of 60. It was all there at the age of 16. And it's one of the great experiences of um, complete, complete realization that we have in, in human history. And Katie's story is uh, quite similar to his, with no preparation, just having a life-changing spiritual opening that is uh, deep and, and powerful and, and, and doesn't need anything more. Uh, anyway, that he was my connection with the Hindu tradition. And he taught something that people call Advaita or non-dualism, where uh, anytime there's a split in understanding, it'll bring you back to the wholeness of it. Which is a box that Katie could also be in, is non-duality. Yeah. Yeah. Non-duality can sometimes become um, an excuse for not dealing with things on a karmic level. And often with non-dual teachers, it, it becomes something that's not useful. But certainly with the work, the work of Byron Katie, uh, everything, everything that's on a a personality level that's not whole and healed has got to be investigated and, and seen through. And so- And um, integrated. And integrated, yeah. yeah. And it, it's integrated by itself, but you know, it's not shunted off uh, to uh, with an excuse that, that this isn't real and, and that it's not important to look at. Yeah, there, I think there's a lot of uh, teachers that I disconnected with because it felt like. Have you heard the term spiritual bypassing? No, I haven't. That's an that's a good term. They're kind of skipping the messy part because it's scary, especially as a teacher, right? Like, I think the the scariest thing for a teacher is to say, "Well, I don't know, but I have, you know, I'm willing to walk with you while mm -hmm. you figure it out." When I started Zen, my teacher had a phrase, don't know mind. He said, I've brought nothing to America, but don't know mind. It, it takes a while to, or it took me a while to differentiate between ignorance and the don't know mind. What, what was he talking about? And I discovered that the don't know mind was the mind that's completely open to reality that doesn't cling to any concept or any assumption and that is open enough to let reality penetrate and and it's so important that that's the most important thing at the beginning of any kind of practice and not only at the beginning but at the end and uh, when i first mentioned that phrase to katie she just was thrilled it was it delighted her because it's what she knows and what she's been saying all along, but it, it put it in a different way. It's a very catchy phrase. So my, my teacher had a, a talent for catchy phrases, and that was one of them. As a storyteller, as somebody who understands the power of narrative, of story, how do we fall in love with our own story and be able to write a story for ourselves that we love and is empowering and captures the truth of where we've been and also be aware that story is in the non-dual tradition, like the source of all pain. 
it is arguably a lie right, that we mm-hmm. tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. But I that's been one of my hard things to come to grips with, with non-duality, is I so love the parts of my story that are empowering. Mm-hmm. You know, I so love the, the story that, like, I'm meant to do things. You know, I have mm-hmm. a purpose. And still also understand that clinging to that story is a huge source of pain as well. Well, indeed, one of Katie's brilliant insights is that it really is a a deepening of the Buddha's second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering. And according to the Buddha, the cause of all suffering is clinging and desire. And that's absolutely true. But it seems to me more useful to say, as Katie does, that the source, the cause of all suffering is believing our stressful thoughts, because that gives us a way actually to work with them, a specific way. For example, we're talking about stories. Uh, When I first met her, she used to introduce me to her friends as, this is Stephen, my husband, he still thinks he's Jewish. And, uh, (laughs) And I would say, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I love that story. And I also know that it, it's untrue at a certain level, beyond a certain point. It's, it's absolutely a lie. And yet I love it, and, and I love it not attached to it. So let me, let me start this again in a different direction. One of Katie's questions is actually the fourth question, is who would I be without my story? It's a very interesting question. You've come to this fourth question after working the other questions, is it true that you're asking this of any stressful thought that you may have? Is it true? Can I absolutely know that it's true? How do I react when I believe that thought? And who would I be without the thought or without the story? And the process of, of actually diving into that question is a process of looking at the situation where you're believing the thought for example, she doesn't listen to me. So I'm examining a situation where somebody that I love, in my opinion, isn't listening to me. And I'm, I'm there, I'm seeing the place and the time and the situation, and I'm subjecting that belief of mine, she doesn't listen to me, to very rigorous examination of, is that true? And then I'm seeing all the ways in which believing that thought, she doesn't listen to me, is causing all sorts of suffering in me, causing anger or distrust or disappointment in her, whoever that might be, et cetera. All as a result of believing the thought, it has nothing to do with her. And then I'm seeing the situation, I'm seeing myself talking to her at a moment where I used to think that she wasn't listening to me without the thought without that overlay onto the situation. And I'm actually able to see in great detail, look at her eyes, uh, look at her responses, et cetera, without the overlay of the story. And that can be an experience of great revelation, of great surprise even. Your question about stories is, is really, to my mind, a question about how do I see the value of stories when I've experienced the clarity of being beyond stories, when I've seen that any story is a distortion 
of the truth, that the truth about any particular person is way beyond stories. So even somebody that I love dearly, when I put any story onto her, even the most innocent story, I'm distorting who she really is. So my answer is that when you've spent some time in that space beyond stories, that space of dazzling clarity, you can go back to the mind that invents invent stories and, and experience a story in a completely different way, in a completely clear way. Let's take the Joseph story. I've spent a lot of time in, in my own life seeing that everybody is beyond a story that everybody is beyond good and evil. I can come back to the Joseph story, for example, as I personally have, and for instance, look at the brothers who have been in this murderous rage. Especially the worst ones, like Simeon. Yeah, right? yeah. but all of them, all of them are complicit in, in really this murder of their own flesh and blood, as they later come to see, whereas the traditions, the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition, if you look at the old rabbinic midrashes, the midrash meaning um, a, a, an expansion of the original biblical story, if you look at their midrashes and look at Christian sermons from the third and fourth century on through the Renaissance, on through modern days, you can, you can see all of these sermons online, actually. You will not find a single one that doesn't judge the brothers as evil. And once you put somebody into that category of evil, or or the, the woman in the story, the wife of Joseph's master, when he becomes a slave in mm -hmm. Egypt and becomes this wonderfully talented shaman, interpreter of dreams, and, and entrepreneur, actually, who's responsible for everything in the house and the life of his master, who's one of the highest officials in Egypt. His wife, who, who becomes enamored of Joseph and obsessed with Joseph and trying to entice him to sex. When you see her as the Christian- And later accuses him of rape. Yeah, accuses him of rape, which is a horrible thing. When you see her as the Jewish and the Christian tradition do as an evil woman, you're reducing her to this cartoon, a cartoon of evil. But if you actually imagine her beyond that, a moral caricature and and expand it into a, a larger story uh, as a result of your experience beyond stories, you can see the living, pulsing heart of somebody who is in great pain because of her attraction. And, um, and her own neglect. Her, her own neglect. I mean, this is a woman married to a, a eunuch who never thought sex would enter her life and was very um, content without it, a, a life of great brilliance and uh, in, in the Egyptian court and a uh, love of aesthetics, a love of great beauty, who's, who was living a, a, a life of great fulfillment. And then suddenly this overpowering eros enters her life and, and she doesn't know how to deal with it. So... What I'm saying is that when you realize that every story is a reduction, you're able to look at people, whether fictional people or living people, with a, an experience of much greater compassion. You're seeing that they too are caught in a story, just as you have been caught in your own personal stories before. But when you've 
gotten to a point beyond stories, you're able to understand stories that cause suffering in a much deeper way, as Katie does. You know, not not to always revert to Katie, but in this particular instance, it's a uh, it's remarkable how when she's working with someone, when she's doing the work with someone who's caught in something terribly painful from ordinary upsets to people who've been through torture or the Holocaust or rape or some kind of horrible human stuckness. Through her own experience of suffering, she's able to enter that space and blow it up or help, more accurately, help someone blow it up because she understands the place beyond suffering where they're they're not able to access yet. So she's able to take them by the hand and lead them into who would I be without my story? And also what she calls the turnarounds, which are ways of experiencing the opposites of what they're so convinced of, the beliefs that they're so attached to. When you see that the opposite of your belief can also be true, maybe even truer than the uh, the thought that you've been so painfully attached to, that loosens things up, and it helps bring you beyond the original belief. So what I'm saying here in answer to your basic question is that the, the stories that you can come to with pleasure and understanding after you've been in a place beyond all stories, makes them more real, more human, more fascinating than before you began this process. So I think one of the proofs of the pudding is in this book, at least if I've done my job well, and it seems like you responded to the story in a way that I, my ideal reader would respond to it. It's a, it's a, a beautiful story, but it also takes us into places where I think we find more understanding, like understanding the whole spirit of forgiveness. Once once we find ourselves in this flesh and blood situation with the brothers and, and, and Potiphar's wife and all the other things that Joseph goes through, we can see him go through them with, with uh, an enlightened mind, where he's not caught in likes and dislikes or judgments of good and bad. So we can, we too can participate in those experiences through his mind. And I think it's always helpful to, you know, rather than having this, an abstract moral position, seeing it as part of a story and being, uh, kindly taken along in the, in the rush and the flow of events and, seeing what it feels like from that point of view. Don't think I didn't notice that you've made Joseph a non-dualist sage. <laughs> but, one but, of, but, you know, and I, I love, I'd love to answer that next question, but just, just to say very briefly, this isn't something I felt I was imposing onto the original story. It's not a Buddhist warping of the story. The story itself 
has that element in it because at, he, at the end of the book when he's talking to his brothers and saying how he, he forgives them, uh, of course he forgives them because, um, because his understanding of God is bringing him to this experience. It was already implicit in the story and explicit at that point. So I'm not warping the story with a, a, an Im something imposed from the outside. It's it's really from the inside. Anyway, I interrupted you. No, I mean, he really finds harmony by trusting the process. I mean, even when he's not kicking and screaming when he gets sold to the slaves, right? Or as the book mentions that, you know, he probably could have gotten returned back to his father had he really fought it, but then he would still be left with with what he had at the beginning, yeah. Yeah, and he, you know, I, I have him realize at that point that slavery is not necessarily a bad thing, at which is, you know, can be very shocking to our moral conscience. This is built into the story. It's in slavery that he does find freedom. There is a trust in, the pro in there's, his there's process. absolute yeah. trust, and, and it's seeing that any experience without the overlay of good and evil without the moral overlay can be a, a source of freedom. Following that experience and understanding that reality has an intelligence embedded in it, and that if we, if we follow it without judgment, we can be taken to a place far beyond what our own personal intelligence would have taken us to. One of the things I've been working through lately is my relationship to money. Ah, right, and uh, that's an important one. It's an important one because obviously it takes money to live. It takes money to be safe and, and comfortable mm. and taken care of. And some of my favorite guests who are considered wildly successful teachers, mm. it was surprising to to look behind the veil and go, oh, wow, there's still, you know, and I, I asked a few of them, I said, what's your relationship like to money? What a good question. I, I asked it off yeah. air because I didn't, you know, at this point it was so uncomfortable for me to talk about it. I wouldn't dare putting them on the spot. Oh. And they said, this has been my life's work, mm -hmm. you know, is like it there of that funny guilt you have from when you're trying to help people or you believe you're doing a good cause and charging. One of the things that stuck out to me when we were all talking is your pride or not pride, but your confidence. It was that you were, you were so, you looked up to Katie for being such a good businesswoman mm. and for being such a competent generator of prosperity. I was just curious of what has your relationship been like to freeing yourself of those, sh such a of good those shackles, right? Yeah, those shackles. Absolutely. So, so I'll tell you, this is, this is a somewhat long story, but obviously you're interested. So I'll, I'll let loose on that. When I was uh, practicing Zen, my attitude was that money is something to be avoided. And I came to Zen with that attitude. I came to it with, you could say, cherry picking the, the Jewish tradition. And the Jewish tradition is, is something where the community has an obligation to support its scholars, its its spiritual scholars. So um, basically it was up to the wife, you know, you get married 
and your wife has the children, brings the children up, takes care of the household, earns the money, and you spend all day happily reading Torah in the in the house of study, and that's your job. And and your wife is supposed to be wildly proud that she's uh, that her husband is a great scholar, and meanwhile she is taking care of everything in his life. And so that's the tradition. And of course, it is a, a very good tradition if you're a man, not so much if you're a woman. So that combined with a certain ascetic quality in the Buddhist tradition, after all, it is a monastic tradition at the beginning, led to my attitude of um, not wanting to have anything to do with money. Uh, because that's not spiritual. And in fact, when I met my teacher, I had been living for for four or five years off an inheritance from my grandfather. It was, was $20,000. So I, at the time, that was a great deal of money. So it bought me six or seven years of confusion, uh, <laughs> of, of freedom from my confusion. I didn't know how I would in the world, I would earn my living, and uh, I, I knew that I, my life was about finding an answer to this question of human suffering, and, and, and I was working on the book of Job. That was what I was doing mostly in my daily life, and I hoped that eventually that would get published, but I didn't know how, I, I didn't think it would earn any money. I didn't know how it, I would possibly make a living. So at, when I met my Zen teacher, uh, I had $5,000 left, and I gave that to him in return for a space on the floor where I could sleep and um, daily meals of rice and steamed vegetables. So that, that was my bargain with him. And he said, J great, you know. So I, I had a place to sleep and, and food, and that was enough. After I left him and had met my ex-wife, I told her about the Jewish tradition, and I told her about my experience with Zen. And she said she was a very uh, smart and clear in, in many ways. She, she listened to my story, you know, my, uh, about the Jewish tradition with a, a a very raised eyebrow, and she she said, "You know, uh, I don't buy this at all. Aversion is the flip side of greed, and you're you're putting energy into it." which is really the same as wanting money. And she said, furthermore, if you want your books to go out to more than a tiny public, you're going to have to have the grace and the openness to receive the money that comes back to you from the sale of those books. And that's what finally convinced me that she was right. It was a very hard thing to hear because I had built so much of my life on that belief that money is something to be avoided. And I, I, I associated it with oppressive male energy at that point. So after she said that, I, I was in a state of huge resistance for two weeks. And then finally I let it in and I, I saw that she was right. So I made that a central part of my spiritual practice, money karma, working on my money karma. And it was like setting an intention. At that point, the first money I ever earned was for my selected Rilke, and I got a whopping advance of $2,500, which was a king's ransom to me at the time. <laughs> and uh, the first thing I did 
with that money was uh, my parents had been supporting me uh, after I left my Zen teacher and had given away all my money. My parents, bless their hearts, came to the rescue and, and said, oh, we'd like to support you with $2,000 a year. And that, that kept me afloat for five years. And then when I earned the $2,500 for the Rilke, the first thing I did was take my father out to lunch at the Four Seasons in New York. My mother wouldn't go. She didn't want to spend any of my money. <laughs> and he who, he was a meat and potatoes man, and all he could bring himself to do was order a green salad at the Four Seasons because that was the least expensive. It was like $20 or something. But he was so proud of me, and I was so proud of being able to afford that and, and do that. For six years after that, I was earning something like you know $5,000 a year from a book. I would write a, a book every year or so. It had stuck at that point, and I knew that it was stuck. And eventually, this was six years into the practice, I guess. Eventually, I said, well, I need to break the log jam. I'm going to do a retreat with this intention of, of opening it up somehow. I should tell you that I had, when I was involved in intensives and practice, part of my routine was to do a couple of solitary 100-day retreats. Wow. And the, the practice was 20 hours a day of meditation and four hours of sleep. And it was very, very intense, as you can imagine. But for this one, I decided to do a mini retreat, 100 days, and it would be every night from midnight to 3 a.m. And it would have that intention of, of somehow breaking through my difficult money karma. I did it and it kept kept going. And I knew that, you know, not to look at what was happening because uh, you never know and you shouldn't know until, until it does happen. But about 90 some odd days into it, I had a vision of Yoda from Star Wars. Very, very clear vision. He was there for like two minutes. I didn't reach out to touch him, but I, I, it was very, very clear. And then the next night, he came again, and the third night, he came again. So after the 100 days were over, I, I looked at the experience. In meditation, you don't question what's happening, and a vision, you know, it's just mind stuff, a vision of, um, of the resplendent Krishna or St. Teresa's vision of, of God or any high spiritual experience of the sort is exactly equivalent to a pain in your knee or remembering something your mother said to you when you were three years old. It's all mind stuff and you don't judge it one way or the other. So I didn't look at it until after the hundred days were over and I said, what could that be telling me? And then all of a sudden with a sense of elation, I thought, well, maybe I'll write a very free version of the Tao Te Ching and call it the Book of the Force, and it will have a commentary by Yoda, and it will be really commercial, and that's how I'll break through my money karma. And so I started that way, and after a, a couple of months of really wonderful work, I was able to get through to George Lucas, and, and he said, no, I don't <laughs> want my character used that way or for any particular real spiritual tradition. And and his no was was a different kind of yes to me because I didn't find a problem in it. I said, "Okay, I'll translate Tao as Tao, and I'll it'll be my commentary rather than Yoda's." During the retreat, I I had this sense of radiance around the figure of Yoda, and I 
later, when I came to this realization, I, I understood that it wasn't Yoda that was the commercial part of it. It wasn't, that had nothing to do with the radiance around the idea. It was, it was the, a version of the Tao Te Ching that was thoroughly mine and very free that had the radiance. And so when I came out with a proposal, seven publishers were bidding for it in the auction, including some that had published versions of the Tao Te Ching before. And it got the highest advance for any translation ever. It, 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 uh, there was a story in the financial pages of the New York Times about it. And that was the end of my money problem. And ever afterwards, I saw money as um, simply energy. And if I was clear, it would come. And I've, I've never had to think about it before or since. And when I met Katie, it was it was a great delight to see what a talent she had for that. I mean, always before before her experience and after her experience, she simply has a gift, as some people do, attracting abundance. And it's it. For her, it it is always uh, something that's much bigger than the personality. When I first met her, and I, uh, my literary agent had asked me to write a book that later became Loving What Is, I didn't want to say yes until I had tested her around money and power, because my experience of my own Zen teacher and a, a number of other spiritual teachers at the time had been that when people came to grief, it was often around um, issues of money and power with their students and their communities. And I didn't want to get involved with any spiritual teacher who wasn't absolutely clear on those two subjects. And so uh, I interviewed her when I first met her around those. I had these kind of hidden landmines in my questions, uh, which would tell me where, where she was off if she was. And she was an innocent, she, you know, as innocent as a baby around those, uh, no desire one way or the other, and absolutely, uh, absolutely clear on those two issues. So I, it was a great joy to, to see that. She could understand what I had been through, but it was never an issue for her. She just had that gift. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My, my work is definitely around money karma right now. You've been very generous with your time. And this is the final question. Mm. If I could hand you a phone right now, and on the other end, a payphone would ring as 20-year-old you, mm. a younger version of you is walking by, mm -hmm. and you pick it up, what would you want to tell that young man to help guide him on the way to becoming who you are today? Well, I would say do exactly what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I gave any hints of something else, then that young man wouldn't have made the mistakes and wouldn't have gone through the confusion that led to who he's become today. I wouldn't want to touch it. Um, I would just say, uh, you know, do what you're doing and, and trust and adios muchacho. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at hellohumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is hellohumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of 
any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art in the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description. And it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution. So our patrons are our financial backbone of this product. That's how we manage to do this ad-free. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash how to human that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash how to human this is the how to human podcast a production of hellohumans.co until next time have a great day